Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Uh, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. Uh, I'm so thankful that you are here to worship with us. If you are a guest of ours this morning, uh, as Hunter said, we want to just thank you for being here. And we have a small gift bag for you at our Connect table. So please stop by before you leave today. Pick up one of those bags if you've never grabbed one before. And just let us get to know you. Uh, let us thank you for being here. And let us learn how we can best serve you as a church family. Now, um, we're going to, going to be in Luke chapter 2. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 through 7. Now, as, as you turn there, uh, I wanted to bring up a subject that many people have vastly different opinions on, and that is, when is it okay to begin decorating for Christmas, right? I mean, some people say, okay, the day after Thanksgiving is the day. That should just be like a universal rule. You celebrate Thanksgiving and then, boom, tree goes up. You start putting the Christmas lights on the outside of the house. You put the inflatable snowman out there, whatever you got going on this year, right? That's, that's when you do it. Other people would say Thanksgiving is a day. Christmas is a season. November 1st is whenever you decorate for Christmas. You really want to be able to enjoy it the, the whole time. Now, other people say first day of December. Right, Here, here's the reality. Regardless of whenever you decide to put up your inflatable snowman or when you hang the stockings, there is something amazing that happens at Christmas. You have these normal yards that you drive by every day, you barely pay any attention to, and then they become decorated with lights. They, they catch your attention because something ordinary and mundane has been completely transformed in, into something beautiful. Something once dark is now lit. You think about the living room, that it's now decorated with a tree and ornaments that remind you of places that you've been or crafts that your children made throughout the year. Christmas is a season in which we were reminded that the ordinary, the mundane, what seemingly could just go unnoticed can be completely transformed. And what's true of Christmas as a season is the very same thing that is true of Christmas as a story. That because Christ entered as the light of the world into a dark world, what could seem mundane, ordinary, even purposeless, is now infused with purpose. The dark becomes light. The ordinary is transformed into beauty. That Jesus makes all things new, and he has come into a hurting world as the hope of heaven, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at the Christmas story. The story of Christmas displays God's loving plan to bring the hope of salvation into a hurting world. That because of the grace, the love, the mercy, the favor of God, your story can be transformed by the Christmas story. Now, as we look at the book of Luke, what we find is that Luke wrote this gospel account after recording the stories of many eyewitnesses, many people who knew Jesus, who watched God's plan of redemption unfold, Luke now, uh, hired by a guy named Theophilus, puts all of these accounts into order. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he's going to tell us about the birth of Christ, this narrative that changes everything. And as we look at it, I want you to see three different contrasts of the story of Christmas. 
there are going to be three somewhat unexpected contrasts of the story of Christmas, and we're going to take each in turn. So if you have your copy of God's Word, as we do every week, we're going to hear God speak from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Word of God says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father God, you are merciful to us. We recognize that that we live in a world where things are not as they should be. That sin has fractured the world that we live in, that we see division, that we see heartache, we experience the consequences of sin in our own life. And thanks be to you, God, that you loved us enough to send your own son to make the dark things light and the wrong things right. May we praise you because of who you are, your goodness displayed through the incarnation of Christ, that the eternal Son of God would take on flesh to bear our burdens and to rescue us from them. We pray this in his name. Amen. As we look at this text, particularly verses 1 through 2, I want you to see the first contrast of the Christmas story, and it is the worldly ruler and the wonderful king. There's a contrast here between the worldly ruler, Caesar Augustus, and the wonderful king who is to be born, which is Jesus. Now we get to verse 1, and what do we read? In those days. Here's what Luke, as the gospel writer, wants you to understand. This isn't a fable. This isn't a myth. He isn't writing a fairy tale that is optional for you to believe. This isn't fiction. He's writing here saying, hey, this was in the days when the decree went out from Caesar Augustus a historical man, a historical event when this decree went out. He continues in verse 2, saying that this was before Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Uh, Here it says that this was the first registration, the first uh, decree before uh, Quirinius was governor. Here, because of the way that uh, we see that Herod was on the throne, uh, ruling as the client king of Caesar Augustus, um, we see that this was something that took place before Quirinius took power. So, so here, here's the big takeaway, right? Two historical people mentioned. Luke is pointing to a historical event that took place. And why does he want us to know that? Because he does not begin this story with the words, once upon a time. He doesn't begin this story with the words, in a galaxy, far, far away. No, he begins this story saying it happened in those days. This is a historical reality. And why does that matter so much? Because the truth is, if the story of Christ's birth is not a myth or a legend, if his story is in fact history, then it must impact your story. This is not a take it or leave it narrative. This isn't a story to just be enjoyed around the time of Christmas. 
No, this is a story that must personally impact you because Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah and Savior of the world, did indeed enter history. So what took place at this point? Well, we read that there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So this decree went out. Everybody needed to be registered. They needed to go to their own town. This was for tax purposes. But here's what I want you to notice. This guy, Caesar Augustus, makes this decree. Now, who was he? He was currently the emperor of Rome who was ruling over uh, the entirety of Rome and all of its provinces. The interesting thing about Caesar Augustus is that neither one of those are his real name. Uh, So Caesar is a title, kind of like king or pharaoh. So he was the Caesar. Augustus was a title that meant majestic, wonderful one. And, And so his true name was Gaius Octavius. And by defeating Mark Antony in battle, he became like the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And then he was given this position as the emperor of Rome. He rose to power. And so although his name was Gaius Octavius, they called him Caesar Augustus, wonderful ruler. Now, isn't that ironic that Caesar Augustus, reigning and ruling during the days of Jesus, would have this title, wonderful ruler? But the irony gets a little thicker because you, you might know that during this time period, uh, around 42 BC, so this was several decades before, you know, about four decades before, Julius Caesar was uh, worshipped as a deity. So he was given kind of this title as a god, a little g-god along with all the other mythological gods that Rome worshipped. Well, so then whenever Caesar Augustus is adopted as his son, do you know what they called him? The son of God. Whenever he was born, there was a proclamation that went out through the land saying, here is the savior of the world who has been born. So here we have Caesar Augustus, the one who is called Wonderful Ruler, the one who is called the Son of God by those who are under Roman rule. And it is under that worldly ruler's reign that God would send his own son, Jesus. Yes, the worldly ruler in our story wants to claim the status of the Son of God, but what do we see? That the Christmas story is all about the true Son of God, who came into the world to rule over it by laying his life down for it. In verse 1, we're told about this registration that takes place. Now, roughly every 14 years, Caesar Augustus uh, would have a registration. This is kind of like a census so that they would know how much tax would be exacted from the people that were a part of their kingdom. Uh, so, so even in this time period, Caesar Augustus had his own form of, of the IRS, and they wanted to get paid, and so they wanted a census to go out. They wanted to get their money. Now, what do you see? What words are used in verse 1? That a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Rome was considered such a superpower during this time that it's as if Caesar Augustus could tell the whole world what to do. Right? This was the whole known world at that time. He's acting as if he is the one that rules over the universe. And what do we find through God's providence in our story? That Caesar Augustus might have been in charge, but he was not in control. The contrast of these two 
rulers, the worldly ruler and our wonderful king reveals God's mercy to us in sending his own son. Consider the difference between these two rulers, the one who reigned in power and the one that was to be born in Bethlehem. Augustus was wrongly called the son of God and Jesus was the true son of God who was bringing light into the world. Augustus exercised his rule over the known world to get something from them. And yet Jesus would exercise his rule to bring salvation for them. Augustus rose to power by shedding the blood of another. He killed Mark Antony to get into power. He rose to power by shedding the blood of another and Jesus would display his power by shedding his blood for others. Augustus pretended to be God and king and Jesus is and was proclaimed as God and king. You see the worldly ruler here in our story wanted power. He thought that he was the center of this story. He didn't see how God was at work behind the scenes. And while we might be able to point fingers at at Caesar Augustus for a little bit, this man who was so mistaken in thinking that the throne of Rome was the pinnacle of power and, and thinking that he was kind of able to govern and manage his own life, what we see here is that Caesar Augustus was simply living out the self-focus and the self-centered life that is a mere symptom of the sin that is present in every human heart. You see, you and I are, are not so different from Caesar Augustus, and that's a sobering reality, is it not? How often have you sought control over your own life only to realize that you can't manage your life as well as you thought you could? How often have have you sought to have influence over others or to be recognized by others only to realize that imperfect people will always let you down, whether they mean to or not? You see, the problem of Caesar Augustus is the problem of every single sinner. We are not fit to rule our own lives. You see, whoever is king over your life will determine the kind of life that you live. Let me ask, who's in charge of your life? Who is king over your life? There are a couple ways that you can see this, right? A couple metrics to measure this. When you get impatient, who do you believe is in control of your life? Right? You're like, man, this should be going faster. This should have happened different. And you're seeking to be on the throne of your own heart. Whenever you complain, are you not doubting the goodness and providence of God? Whenever you begin to grumble, thinking, if I, if I could just rule for a day, things would be so much more different than they are. What about whenever you're discontent? What about whenever you're jealous of the station of life or status of someone else? Are you not in that moment just thinking, ah, if I were ruling, I would give myself this in exchange for what they have. Whenever you become proud, you can look at maybe even the, the spiritual growth in your life and see a little pride to creep in and say, man, I am, I'm really doing this. Do you think that it is by your rule that you're growing, that you're being sanctified? No, it's completely because there's a good and wise king named Jesus who sits enthroned upon our hearts. The first conclusion from this contrast is this, that our wonderful king rules over the world and each one of us. 
Our wonderful king rules over the world, and he rules over each one of us. If you are a Christian, Jesus Christ sits enthroned on your heart. So don't try to compartmentalize your life in the same way that you can't compartmentalize this story from history. You can't compartmentalize the story of Christmas and what Christ has done from the way that he is Lord over every area of your life. And if you understood that he is a good and wise king, you wouldn't want to compartmentalize any part of your life. There's this story in, in John 6, 68, where Jesus says a few things that are really hard for some of the people that have been hearing him preach to understand. And they begin to walk away. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, will you go too? And Peter is the first one to chime in in John 6, 68. And he says, but Lord, to whom else will we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Guys, I know that some of you come in here and you're burdened and things are, things are hard. Things are difficult. Would you be reminded that you are under the rule of a good king who knows what's best for you? Man, I shared with some of our church members this morning that this, this is a really hard time. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. And this wasn't in my notes and I wasn't planning to say this, but man, you know, we were, we were expecting the birth of our third child in about three weeks, and you know, we that will not that will not happen because that child is already in the presence of God, and I don't understand that, but I know that my King is good. This morning, my my family's not here because I have a son that's got bronchitis. He's had bronchitis for a month and two earaches. My youngest son has croup. My wife's sick, so she couldn't lead worship. We had a really scary moment this weekend where. Our oldest son's blood oxygen level was at 87, and I didn't know what to do. And you know what you do in those moments? You cry out to the king who is good, and you believe that he is sovereign and he rules over all. So, so what does it mean to live under the rule of this king? Oh, it is to long to hear this king's voice. And he makes his voice known through his word. May you hunger for it. More than whatever you can scroll through on your Instagram, more than whatever frantic Googling you can do at 2 a.m. in the morning because you're not sure where answers will come from, long for the king's voice. Spend time in the king's throne room. May we be desperate for prayer, saying, Lord, who else would we go to? You alone have the words of eternal life. And what consumes our thoughts? It is a purpose, a glorious purpose that has been given by our king who has made us a part of his kingdom. I don't want to live for temporary stuff that won't once I'm dead. I want to lead a life that outlives me because I spent it on the kingdom of God above all else. Our king rules over the world and he rules over every single one of us. May we realize that before Caesar Augustus did. The second contrast of this passage comes to us in verses three through seven. The majesty and humility of the Son of God. Who would have thought the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the long prophesied Messiah would come in this way? Majestic, worshiped by myriads of angels that are innumerable to the human eye. 
and yet he's born in a manger? You see, in verses 3 through 5, Luke is moving from the historical events that surrounded the birth of Christ into the circumstances that surrounded the birth of Christ. What do we read in verse 3? All went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. We see here that Mary and Joseph, she and her third trimester of pregnancy, are making nearly a 100-mile journey from Nazareth, this small, insignificant town in Galilee, to, to the town of Bethlehem. Now, why? Why would they make such a difficult journey at this point in time? Well, we know it's because of the decree. We know that it's because Joseph was of the house of David and a part of this decree, a part of getting accurate numbers for this census. Everybody was required to go back to their hometown. So Joseph then goes to Bethlehem, the town of his ancestors. But there's more at work here. There's a reason that the Son of God would not be born in the temple, but that he would be born in a manger. It's because nearly 700 years before a prophecy was given. You see, this journey to Bethlehem would not be easy, but it would be, it would be necessary for fulfilling the plan of God. Micah 5.2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. You see, Bethlehem was a small town that received a huge promise. You, you small town, there will be one who comes from you for me, who is a ruler of Israel. He will be born, and he will be from of old, from of ancient days. This will be a ruler like no other. Although he would come from here, be born here in human flesh, that would not be his origin. No, he would be from of ancient days. He would be the eternal son of God who had no beginning and yet would have a birthday. This speaks to the deity of Christ in fulfilling this promise that he would be born in Bethlehem, fulfilling this promise as the son of God taking on flesh, the savior of the world. Now, isn't it interesting? You look at this and you say, okay, well, so the prophecy had to be that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, but why do it this way? I mean, couldn't God, which the answer is yes, anytime you begin a, a sentence like that, all right, why, why wouldn't God just pick a, a young girl, any girl in Bethlehem, and then she conceives a child through the Holy Spirit in the same way that Mary did, and then he's born in Bethlehem? Why, why not do it like that? Or, you know, uh, why not she live a little closer, right? I mean, third trimester, 100 miles, that's, that's a lot 
to go all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why, why do things this way? Why take Caesar Augustus, who is on the throne of Rome, reigning in a palace, and then make him think to himself, you know what, it's time for a decree. I'm going to send out this decree, and I'm going to contact Herod, who's my client king in this region, and I'm going to make him make everybody go to their own towns. And then, you know, then Mary, who's betrothed to Joseph because of his lineage, will then end up in Bethlehem. Why did God do that? To show that he rules over it all. Only God could do that. You see, whenever you know who the Lord is, coincidence is replaced with providence. Coincidence? Wow, isn't it crazy that that worked out like that? That I'm here, that this happened in this way, is replaced by providence. The eternal and all-wise king from eternity past has ordained everything would happen as it would, both for his glory and your good. And this is how he brought things to pass, proving that he rules over all. Specifically, in this case, Proverbs 21.1 comes to mind. The king's heart, Caesar Augustus, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Unbeknownst to Caesar Augustus, who thought he governed the entire known world, as it were, he was simply a pawn in fulfilling the eternal plan of God. Because God is in control of everything. Consider the circumstances that led you here this morning. Who are you sitting next to? Who invited you this morning? How did you get here? Where were you born? Who has ordained all of these things? Who is orchestrating your past, present, and future? You see, the answer to every single one of those questions is inseparable from the merciful providence of God. Are you here by chance? Absolutely not. Which means you have to ask the question of yourself right now, what would God want to say to me this morning? Why would God bring me here? to sit under his word, to praise him with his people, to be drawn into prayer. That's not by coincidence. It's by the merciful providence of God as a Christian to remind you of his care for you. Have you doubted that this week? Here's your reminder. God brought you here. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering, man, my life is an absolute mess. I don't know. Can God speak to me? Yeah. He wants you to know that he cares for you. And he has displayed that fact first and foremost through the sending of his own son to forgive your sins, to remove your shame, to wipe away your guilt, to give you a righteousness that can only come through a personal relationship with the living God. And that is made available through Jesus Christ, the son. And so Jesus humbled himself as the majestic king to enter the world. Verse 4 points again to who Christ is, fulfilling the prophecy that David would have, one who reigns on the throne, because Joseph was from the house of David. We read here that Joseph was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Why does Luke want us to know this? Because he wants us to know that the marriage still has not been consummated yet, right? So Mary is with child. And she conceived as a virgin because the power of the Holy Spirit rested upon her. And the child that is in her womb was conceived 
through a miraculous work by the Holy Spirit of God, which means Christ would be holy and without a corrupt human nature like anyone else, although he had 100% a fully human nature. And at the same time, because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, he is indeed the Son of God, fully God, taking on flesh. Now, while they are in Bethlehem, we see in verse 6 that they were there for a little while, right? And while they were there. So we don't have to have this kind of um, image of them frantically, you know, Mary is having contractions at, at the point in time that they enter the city limits and, you know, they're like searching for a place and then there's this rude innkeeper that tells them there's no place for the inn. A lot of that has been added, right? Um, so, so I don't want to say that uh, none of that is the case. And yet what we do see here is that while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem is exactly as God had promised through Micah, she began to enter into labor with this child. And verse 7 says, She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, like these little bandages, swaddled this child and laid him in a manger, like a, like a feeding trough. Laid him in this manger because there was no place for them in the inn. It is likely the case that because of the influx of people during that time, there was, there was no room really to stay anywhere else. And so here they ended up in a place that was typically assigned to animals. And so there our majestic king is born in humility among animals. Think about it. Christ came, and yet he's born to poor parents. This, this young virgin girl, a blue-collar carpenter that many would have overlooked. And man, the Son of God is born into this world. He was the king of all creation, but not born in a palace. He owns the entire universe and was numbered among the impoverished. Our king made himself lowly so that we might know his love for us. St. Augustine says this, that God became a man so that following a man, something you are able to do, you might reach God which was formerly impossible to you. It's, it's impossible for us to reach God through our own efforts, through our own righteous deeds. So what did God do? God came to us by sending his own son, which leads us to our second conclusion. The majestic king was made low for us. The majestic king, the Lord over all creation, was made low for us. Paul, whenever he's writing to the church in Corinth, says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He made himself lowly so that you could know this gospel good news, that God is merciful and gracious, that he is able to save, that he is indeed God with us. Think about the fact that Jesus was born in a manger. We'll talk about this more next week, but this speaks to the accessibility of Christ, that anyone can come to him. He wasn't born in a palace or in a temple, because if he was born in a palace, then only the noble, those of great status, could come to him. If he was born in a temple, then the Gentiles 
who were not of Jewish descent could not come to him, but he was born in a manger so that the angel could say in Luke 2, 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It would not have been much of a sign if the angel would have said, you will, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. And the shepherds would have been like, that is every baby that has ever been born, right? What's the sign? That this baby, the king, He'd be in a manger, accessible to any who seek him. And the same is true today, that Christ is accessible to all who recognize their need for him and seek him. Not only that, there is a subtle reference to Isaiah 1-3 in the fact that Christ was born in a manger. Uh, There's this moment in the beginning of the book of Isaiah where God is reprimanding his people, and he uses an analogy saying this. He says, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's manger, the feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He says, the donkey knows where it is fed. The donkey knows where to find provision. The donkey knows where he is sustained. But the people of God, they have forgotten their source of life. And here we see the bread of life, true spiritual nourishment, the Son of God who is the Savior of the world, born in a manger, so that those who knew Isaiah 1-3 would be reminded that God has provided all that is needed for his people. And those who once hungered in spiritual darkness may be satisfied. The third and final contrast, the hope of heaven in a hurting world. What do we do with this story? We see that the hope of heaven, Christ Jesus, has entered into a hurting world. You see, later in the book of Luke, in chapter 19, there is this man who is just a downright scoundrel. Some of you might know the song about him, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? The, the first short king who's, you know, accounted for in the Bible. And uh, Zacchaeus ripped people off. He's always taken taxes from people, much more than he should have. And then Jesus comes to him in the tree, and if you're Zacchaeus, you're like, what is Jesus about to say to me? And then Jesus says, you know what? I want to go to your house today. I want to have a relationship with you. I want a personal relationship with you. And Zacchaeus begins to marvel. He cannot believe the grace of God that, that Jesus would want a personal relationship with him. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus gives his mission statement, or one of them, in Luke 19.10. And he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what I came for. Zacchaeus, a downright scoundrel of a man who had stolen more money than some of us might have in our lifetime. And what does Jesus say? I came for people like you to seek and to save people just like you. And I don't know about you, but that's really good news for me. Because I need to be saved. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost, of which I was one. And if you are a Christian, understand that Jesus came to seek and to save you. If you're here this morning searching, recognize that Jesus has come, the Son of Man, to seek and to save the lost. You see, the the spiritual condition of being lost can be described in four ways. Spiritually hungry, desperate, isolated, and darkened, spiritually hungry. If you can think back to your life before Christ, if you're, if you're not a believer, 
You experienced this. If you think about those moments, even in your Christian walk, that you forget that Christ alone satisfies, you feel this. If you're here this morning and you have never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, you know this to be true. That as Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has placed eternity in your heart. You have been hardwired for a personal relationship with God. And whenever that relationship does not exist, there is a hunger in your heart that you will seek to satisfy in a million different ways. Let me tell you how these cravings of the soul typically work themselves out. They lead you into dishonoring relationships. They lead you into destructive behaviors that you will one day regret, or they leave you into a self-centeredness that feels absolutely hollow and unsatisfying. Even if the pleasures of this world are able to temporarily satisfy you, you know that pleasure is fleeting. You can have the corner office or change your relationship status or whatever it is, and still something doesn't feel quite right because only Christ can satisfy the spiritually hungry. And what does John 6, 35 say? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. That spiritual hunger of the heart will be satisfied in Christ Jesus, who is the bread of life. Now, isn't it interesting that Christ, the bread of life, would be born in Bethlehem? Why? Because the literal translation of that Hebrew word means house of bread. Bet is house. Lahem is bread. The bread of life was born into Bethlehem to satisfy the spiritually hungry. The second characteristic of a soul that is lost is one that is desperate. There are four characters that we see in this story other than Jesus. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Mary, Joseph. And what do they all have in common? They need a Savior. Now, they're on different levels of what we might call the, the religious spectrum. You got Mary and Joseph, devout Jews trusting the Lord. Mary wants to be a servant of God. As we saw last week, she's saying, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do it. Right? Joseph heard from an angel. He's trusting the Lord. Caesar, Augustus, Quirinius, they're kind of living out this pagan lifestyle, ruling their own lives, doing their own thing. And what do they all have in common? The same thing that you and I all have in common. We need a Savior. Why? Because Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And to perish apart from a personal relationship with God is, enter, is to enter into an eternal punishment called hell because we have sinned against a holy God. You see, our situation apart from Christ is desperate and praise be to God that Christ has come to take that punishment in our place so that whoever believes in him would be rescued from that desperate situation. Third, we are isolated, separated from God, apart from Christ. Isaiah 59.2 says that your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Christ came as the Savior to bridge the gap between those who were once separated from a holy God. Fourth and finally, we are darkened. Apart from Christ, our life is lived in the dark. We have no sense of direction. We are sheep without a shepherd. But the hope of the Christmas story is that light came into the world. As Matthew 4, 16 says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Which is why Jesus in John 8, 12 would say, I am the light of the world. Hear this good news. Listen to the gift of grace that is made known to us in the Christmas story that Jesus, as the bread of life, satisfies the hungry. Jesus sees the desperate and takes on death to rescue us from an eternal hell and into his eternal presence. He welcomes the once isolated into the family of God that we might be sons and daughters of God the Father. The hope of heaven has entered a hurting world to illuminate the darkness and to shed light upon our souls. This is the gift of the good news. Have you received it? Will you receive it? There was an interesting study that was recently published by the Harvard Business Review. And they found that this Christmas season, roughly 40% of people will buy gift cards for a family member or a friend. But here's what they discovered, that the average American has roughly $300 in gift cards somewhere in their possession that they have not even used, that have just sat there unused, partially used, right? Everybody, we're like, man, I don't, it's not 300, but you know, that would be, that would be great. <laughs> they, they discovered that from 2005 to 2011, there was roughly, now this number sounds made up, so I, I, can, I can cite the article for you if it's helpful, $41 billion in gift cards went unused. Now, why do I tell you that? Because it is possible to hear of a gift, to even receive a gift that might be given, but not personally apply it to your own life. Some of you might be sitting here and thinking, this is for someone else. Like, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know where I'm at. God, there's no way God could love me like this. But this good news is for you because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Some of you, Man, even as a believer, you feel like you've, you've let the Lord down this week. Would you see that the same grace that came to you when you first believed is there for you now to sustain you as you walk with the Lord? John 1.12 says this, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you're not a believer, you can call out to the Lord you can repent of your sin, which simply means confessing your sin before the Lord and to admit that you need this grace. You can place your trust in Christ, place your faith in Christ, saying, Jesus, I believe that you died to take the penalty of my sins, that you were buried and three days later you rose again and that in your life I can have eternal life, that you would have life in his name. Christian this gospel news is a great gift to be reminded of. I don't know about you, but typically at this time of the year, I begin thinking through what my goals for the next year are gonna be. I'm looking at 2024 thinking, how do I wanna grow? How do I wanna change? And one of the most discouraging parts about that is looking back at the goals that I made last year and seeing how often I fall short. I wanted to date my wife better and, and be a more intentional husband. I wanted to be a better dad to my kids. I wanted to really take discipleship and, and the home seriously and help them memorize more scripture. I wanted to be a more faithful pastor. I wanted to think of myself less. I wanted to crush the pride that often creeps in. I wanted to be less anxious and have a deeper, more robust faith in the Lord. And in all the ways that I fall short, I look up and see what Christ has done on my behalf. 
is the good news of the Christmas story, that Christ has come, Savior of the world and sustainer of all who trust in Him, which leads us to our final conclusion, that Jesus was wounded to rescue the ones He loved. You see, to rescue this hurting world, Christ was wounded on our behalf, that Jesus was wounded to rescue the ones He loved. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, salvation is free to us, but it was costly to the Son of God. The story of Christ's birth paves the way for Christ's death on our behalf. Yes, in this story, Jesus was laid in a trough, but one day he would be laid on a wooden cross to take on the sins of many. Here he was wrapped and swaddling cloths at the moment of his birth. And one day he will be wrapped in a linen shroud and laid in a tomb because of his death. Here he rested his head in a borrowed manger that was reserved for animals. And one day he would be resurrected in a borrowed tomb because he wouldn't remain dead. Those who have dwelled in darkness have seen a great Light, and it is Jesus, the light of the world, who has come into a hurting world to display the love of God. You see, the Christmas story creates a fourth contrast, not one that's here in the pages of Scripture, but one that is to be lived out in your very life, who you once were and who you are now. It's the contrast of the Christmas story made a reality in the life of a Christian. You were once an orphan. Now you are a child. You once lived in darkness, and now you walk in light. You were once helpless, and now you are full of hope. You were once enslaved, and Christ has set you free. The dead become alive, and the lost are loved by God. The hope of heaven has entered a hurting world to display the love of God to the lost. Let's pray.